Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. This is an interview I did with Kerry Muelstein and his podcast, The Scriptures Are Real. This is a collab episode. We collaborated. And so it's released on The Scriptures Are Real podcast and on this channel right here, The Strangers in Jerusalem. So I hope you like the video. Please comment. Tell me something new that you learned in this episode. Uh, we've got to 400 subscribers, so we're small but growing. So if you like these videos, uh, press the like button, subscribe, and share with uh, other people. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm very, very excited to have with us today a guest we had last year when we did David and Goliath. Uh, this is, my, I guess, my, my cousin-in-law. I don't know what the exact term is, but uh, married my cousin and uh, the ancient uh, history, uh, ancient Near Eastern history, I can't remember, but uh, uh, subject librarian at BYU has degrees in a number of things, so I'll let him introduce himself. But uh, this is Trevin Hatch. Welcome, Trevin. Thanks. Appreciate it, Kerry. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been the... My, my title is the longest in the library. It's uh, the official title, something like Ancient Near East, Anthropology, Middle East, Jerusalem Center, Museum Studies, Librarian. Yeah. Um, so we kind of laugh. But say that, that 10 times quick. Yeah, they, the reason why we got all those subjects is because they kind of, uh, our Middle East Studies Librarian retired and they gave me topics that were relevant to the ancient world. Anthropology has archaeology. And I got a lot of that training in, in various ways in grad school. And then Middle East, because uh, I do Jewish studies. Uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a faculty librarian. Uh, I didn't anticipate that career, but I came in from LSU with a PhD in uh, what essentially is sociology of religion. And I wrote my dissertation on, a, on Jews, on Judaism. And I got a master's degree in Bible and early Judaism, working on uh, finishing up a second doctorate on Bible and early Jewish history. So that's, uh, that's my training. I've been yeah. You studied at Hebrew U, too, didn't you? Yeah. Hebrew in U and University of the Holy Land, two, two Israeli universities, uh, different programs. Um, so, yeah, a lot of training. In my main area is in Jewish studies, and I learned basically to read texts, read scripture from Jews. So I really didn't have, kind of like you, Carrie, where you had uh, Egyptology and then some related training in biblical studies. I was kind of similar where I didn't get a degree in biblical studies proper where I'm taking classes in like the gospel of John and like the synoptic problem. My, my classes were Josephus and the parting of the ways and the Dead Sea Scrolls and all that, um, all that material, early rabbinic writings. So it's, it was really fun. So yeah. a lot of that transferred to my job now. It's a blast. Good stuff. Very good. Well, and you have a couple of books. One, if I remember right, one that's out, one that's about to come out. Is that right? Yeah, there's a few. So the, um, I guess we can start now and then work backwards. So we have a, I've got a book with um, Eric Huntsman, who's right now serving as the, the director of the Jerusalem Center. This is this will come out next month on Holy Week. So it's uh, what we want to do is put a practical guide together for Latter-day Saints to walk through Holy Week each day, looking at uh, the different events in Christ's life, but also but give some scholarship, give the texts relevant to that day talk about how Christians have um, traditionally you know, observed those days and then suggestions for Latter-day Saints. So that one's coming out. Um, and then my book in 2019 was A Stranger in Jerusalem. I think I've got it somewhere around here. Yeah, I do too. 
Yeah, it's so here it is, Stranger in Jerusalem. Oh, you've got it good. Yeah, I've got my copy somewhere in these shelves. But anyway, yeah. So yeah, um, that, that's that was a fun book. I published it. That came out halfway through our New Testament year last time. I didn't publish it with an uh, LDS press. It was a academic Christian, uh, religious studies Christian press. So that talks all about the Jesus within his Jewish context, but uh, really looking this book, I've got a companion volume coming out, but this one is about Jesus, the man and his relationship to his peers. How do the Jewish people in like your average pedestrian Jew view him versus the temple establishment, Pharisees? How did he engage with the world around him um, and the different roles that he played according to people like a healer, a miracle worker, a messiah? We'll talk about some of that today, but that's what that that's what that book is about. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that puts you in and that, that the book that's about to come out is also on messianism, isn't it? Uh, uh, with Eric Huntsman? No, no. Didn't you have another one that was about to come out or am I remembering wrong? Um, no, that so I've got uh, I've got a book that I'm working on. Oh, you're working on that deals with. Um, yeah, it deals with messianism, but also early Christian conflict and how that shaped the political message of the Gospels. So a lot of that's in there. Yeah, so that's the one I was thinking of. I just I guess I, I was uh, ready to read it next week. So I was ready now. But um, yeah. anyway, well, that congratulations on all that stuff. And, and all of that really will inform what we're going to talk about today. So what we're going to do uh, is we're going to talk about uh, like what life was like for people in general, like, you know, uh, living and dying and health and uh, that kind of thing. A little bit of what people looked like and how they got along. Uh, so that we can better picture Jesus, his family, his apostles, their families, disciples, and so on. We're also going to talk about what are people looking for when they uh, are looking for a Messiah? Uh, what, what do they think of when they hear prophet, Messiah, son of God, and how that affects what's going on with Jesus's ministry? And hopefully we get to a point where we are all better able to picture what the stories we're reading and understand the teachings we're hearing and picture the process of what it takes to accept Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Today, we're going to talk less about a specific text in Come Follow Me or something along those lines. And the idea is more to help people as they're doing their reading to just picture life uh, and uh, society and so on and, and the Savior's interaction with it. Um, in a way that will help the scriptures be more real to them. Since you're, you really know a lot about what daily life was like uh, for Jews of the time period. And, and uh, uh, of course, I study uh, people from Egypt at the same time period, like I deal with the, the burials of people so we can tell a little bit there. So I'm really interested in that topic and also messianism. So why don't, you just, why don't we start out by just telling us what are some of the things that have become uh, helped you really picture what life was like for Jesus and his audience, his apostles, disciples who are listening to him, people in Capernaum or somewhere else. Uh, what's life like for them? Yeah, yeah, let's jump into it. Um, lots of different ways we could go with it. We could talk about um, holy men in Galilee, miracle workers, that sort of thing. But one of the things that I emphasize in, di in, in different discussions, whether it's Jesus's miracles and people seeking him out, that uh, my mind goes to the health, the health of the population. It yeah. tells us a lot. And a lot of times we don't um, really talk about that much. We just kind of have sometimes two-dimensional characters or you know our mind is going to like crucifixion or to following jesus to jerusalem and we're dealing with some of those issues we forget the day-to-day -day. so um 
there's a few some things in Galilee that's relevant. So we're, we're dealing with a, a group of people uh, up in the Galilee that primarily live in small towns. Most of these towns are 10 to 15 acres in size. There's a few that are a lot bigger, like Sepphoris and Tiberias, but um, Capernaum, Nazareth, these are these are 10 to 15 acres. And so you have to have space for maybe a small commercial building, you like a threshing floor, um, you have these narrow and unpaved roads, you might have a small cemetery, unlike the big cities that might have these big paved roads and um, big toll booths where if there's a, a highway running through it, um, it's a lot more commercial. Sometimes even uh, you have plumbing, like a, a plumbing system, a water system, aqueducts and other things. So it's already a very small community. So everybody knows who you are. And you start to remember like Mary of Magdala, where she's got like people believe she had demons in her, it, it, affecting her. Something like that is a, is a travesty for that kind of person because it's like going to a small high school with a few hundred people and everybody is formulating an opinion about you because they know all of your business. Yeah. And, and right, all your cousins and your aunts and uncles business. Yeah. That's right. And, and uh, not only do you have a lot of health problems and we'll talk about that in a minute, but you have these assumptions in the ancient world about what that means. Why do you have these health problems? You must have sinned or there's just some sort of divine disfavor or you, you know, if somebody has a mental health issue, what we would know today uh, clinically well, you just have a demon and, and therefore, you know, nobody's going to touch you. you nobody's going to go to your house, sit on your couch. You're impure. You get, you get problems. So that's a, that's first and foremost a context when Jesus is traveling around, around Galilee of what type of people he's coming, uh, coming uh, in contact with. Now you have a majority of the population that was under the age of 20. We're getting this from Roman census, like Egyptian Roman census uh, demographic data where they're showing that the, the majority of the population, uh, more than half the population was under the tw uh, 20 years of age. You have some archaeologists who have dug in various tombs, including in Myron in Upper Galilee, where this is fascinating because you have 500 years of a, of a big family that have been buried in there and you have 200 individuals. When those individuals were studied, their remains studied, we can tell what their diseases were, how long they lived. And most of those people, I forget, it was something like, uh, I think I've got it somewhere in my notes, but like half of them were under the age of like 18, more than half under the age of 18. Uh, they died before the uh, under the age of 18. And then 70% of those died before the age of five. Yeah. So lots and lots of kids uh, are dying. There's a lot of people who, um, when, they, when they looked at this, uh, tomb and also a tomb down uh, further down in the Central Hill country in the Shefela. There's a couple of tombs down there that tells the same story. People had osteoporosis. They had crooked backs. They had uh, like they had, a lot of them, even around Galilee, had their molar teeth were missing or worn, which means yeah. they're eating a certain diet. You know, uh, they don't have a lot of iron. You would think they would eat the fish, but they're probably selling the fish because some of them are poor. So you're not going to eat all your product. You're going to sell it off. So massive iron deficiencies and a lot of problems that way. So, yeah, and I, we, we actually do similar work. Uh, you know, I've looked both at the, the demographic census uh, information for uh, Egypt at the same time. And uh, we've done a huge cemetery there. And it's it's similar kind of stuff. I, I think the area I work in is particularly fertile. So they may have had slightly better nutrition, but still uh, most 30 percent of people don't live to adulthood. 
in my cemetery, and it, it looks like it's maybe closer to 50% in Egypt in, in general. Uh, if, if you live to 15, you have a pretty good chance of living to like 20 or something like that, but not that many people live past 40. That's, that's uh, some do, right. but uh, more don't than do. Uh, and you can tell nutrition is terrible. It is rare to find someone with a full set of teeth. It's really it's rare. Right. Most right. of them have lost their teeth and you can see abscesses and, and all sorts of, I mean, I would guess, uh, well, statistically for at least our site, a number of people are dying from infections in their, their teeth and their jaw and so on as they get these abscesses and these different things, right? And they don't have the, the way to fight it that we do. So they die from that. As you said, we see lots of, I mean, we find evidence for cancer, or, uh, but as you said, osteoporosis, all sorts of bone injuries, just lots of them that some people lived with and that some people weren't able to live with for very long. Um, but but I think in general, we're finding that there's a lot more dying from infection. We, we underestimate how lucky we are to have antibiotics, uh, to know what to do with infections and how to keep them clean, because it it is what killed a lot of people, including robust, healthy people that then got some kind of infection in their teeth. And that was it. They were done. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So the things that I've learned are, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of seconding this and, and that is, that's right. Where, where people have, and, and not only that, they have like malaria and especially up in the Galilee where there's a lot of water. Josephus talks about rampant um, pests, you know, rampant like yeah. diseases. And, you know, we've got lots of counts in the scriptures where people have the flu or it looks like they have, you know, fever or some sort of. Yeah. Malaria. Like Peter's mother and so on. That's right. Yeah, and I'm I'm just glancing here just to give uh, some numbers from this. They've got, uh, in, you know, Roman census records, only 20% of females and 14% of males lived past age 50. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just... The and and females died younger more than males, but that's mostly because of the dangers of childbirth. And that's another that's right. thing, like childbirth is much safer now than it used to be. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so with with all of this... You, you can, I can kind of imagine, I mean, I don't, I don't really know much about this, but I'm guessing that you have probably, I don't know, Carrie, what would you guess? Half the population that Jesus would come in contact with or that anybody, half the people that you would see on a particular day is dealing with chronic pain. Like I'm guessing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Some, some kind of pain that they don't know how to fix. Yeah. Right. Like I know I, myself, if we didn't have good surgeons, I wouldn't walk very well. Yeah, right, right. right. I've torn my meniscus and, and it took a surgeon to make it so I could walk. So uh, just, I mean, how many people have had some kind of injury like that, that uh, that we have good orthopedic stuff to, to fix that they did not. So I, you're right. Tons of people have some kind of something going on. Everybody has a, a loved one that they've lost. Uh, and, uh, and, and probably most of them have a hard time chewing because they, they have teeth issues. But yeah. So what that tells us, I mean, there's other other things we'll talk about in a minute, but with just with that, with the health, now you can imagine how when when word gets out, whether people believe Jesus was a miracle worker or not, the fact when, when they hear there's this healer, they're going to seek him out and try to you know see what this guy's about because they're like their life is like they're in pain and you know they're experiencing rampant death. And yeah. so that and if it's not them, it's their loved one, right? Uh, kind of like the story of the guy that they lower through the roof. So you do end up with this, this group, the core group that survive and do well are robust people, but they have some, a child or a spouse that is in need. So if it's not them, that's in need, 
they've got someone else that they desperately want healed, right? It's a centurion who's healthy, but his child needs to be healed. Right. That's absolutely right. And if you, okay, so we can add to it. Okay. So not only do they deal with that issue, but people at the time of Jesus, especially up in the Galilee, most people are, they're not impoverished. Like I've seen some scholars, like the scholarly myth of the, the absolute impoverished population. There's a lot of scholars that push back on that and say, I think a lot of people had sufficient, at least enough to like buy a donkey and go on a pilgrimage and they had enough, you know, to get by, but that's if there's no famine. And so what you have in this population, you have an undereducated population, they can't read and they're living in an agrarian lifestyle where they have, when you're five years old, six years old, you have two sets of hands, like a a set of hands, two hands that can work, have to work um, to support. Like you got to do, you got to plow, you got to do all that stuff. And your family absolutely needs um, a lot of this work. And so not only is there that hard lifestyle and the health issues, but you mentioned childbirth. There's a lot of women who are dying in childbirth. I saw some uh, estimates of five to 10%. I mean, I don't know, 10% seems really high, but I wouldn't be surprised, uh, you know, that many. And it's actually pretty hard to to end up knowing for sure, uh, either from census or from looking at at the physical remains. You can't always tell that it's from childbirth. So my guess is that the the percentage that we have evidence for, that it's actually probably higher than that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Right. So we just, okay. So that's not, we got another wave and that, and that is where we have people who are marrying at very young ages. Um, yeah. Again, these same census records uh, and other data where a lot of, and also Roman law and, and Jewish law seems to be similar. And that's a lot of people are marrying between the ages of 12 and 18. You got a, a, a lot of the population married by the age of 14, 12 to 14, 16 women, a little bit younger men later. There, there are, um, we see a lot of people that are married into their 20s, but the rabbis talk about this, Roman law talks about this. And so when Mary, for example, is, let's say, 17 years old, she has already been of marriageable age for two or three years, right? So all of that is kind of to say, if you're if you're a 14-year-old Jesus living in a Nazareth or wherever you are, you know, around in, in the area, you have friends that have died, you have family members who have died. You have friends that have married and moved, moved off. You know, um, you've seen rampant death. You've seen a lot of uh, childless parents and parentless children. And um, that's the lifestyle. So maybe that's normal to them, but there's still a lot of hardship that a lot of pain and a lot of things that happen, death, loved ones that yeah. you can't escape. And, and you would guess that by the time you start his ministry, that Jesus is an uncle He's probably had nephews or nieces die or sisters-in-law or brothers-in-law die or, well, not brothers-in-law aren't going to die in childbirth, but sisters-in-law die in childbirth. And so, I mean, he's seen all that. And to go back to your your point, uh, I, I also would agree that I think that they're probably a little bit beyond subsistence level living until you have a, a bad weather pattern or something like that, right? And then you're knocked down to that. We're just trying to survive. And then you might start to get ahead and then because weather patterns happen, right? So you get ahead and then you get knocked down, you get ahead and you get knocked down. And, and you can kind of see that in the Savior's parables. He's talking a lot. So I don't want to paint life as terrible. I mean, life is good. They, 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 they can enjoy life and, and that's an important thing. But uh, you also have to be careful. And you see in his parables, he's talking about people who are in prison, most likely because of dead. He talks about dead a lot. Uh, he talks about, you know, sowing and planting and these kinds of things. That's the kind of lifestyle he's coming from. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that kind of, that's a, I mean, we could talk more about, uh, there's some kind of benign, less important issues that I talk with my students about, like, what did Jesus look like? And, and uh, most likely, obviously, we don't know. But, you know, I, I spend like 10 minutes in class talking about uh, what did an average Jewish male look like or a female? And, and yeah. You know, and you got the rabbis talking about, uh, and this speaks to your daily life and how you care for yourself. They didn't care for long hair. Even Paul says that nature, physis, tells us that men with long hair are, it's not its not natural or whatever. Um, and you see, you know, how the Roman custom, a lot of that is because of lice and you, you, it's hard, it's, there's, it's hot. And to have all this long hair is not, yeah. you know, not practical. And so you get and the, the few depictions we have of Jews from that time period, which are on coins, they have short hair. Short hair, yeah, and short, short beards. Um, the philosophers had short beards. The rabbis talk about uh, big, unkempt beards uh, is not a holy thing, but also shave, like the way you and I are right now. Clean shaven is actually seen as uh, immature and, and youthful. Yeah. And there's they pull in some you know data from Hebrew Bible. So um, the reason why I actually bring that up in class, just as an aside, is because we we talk about how not that it necessarily matters, but you know Jesus is probably five and a half feet tall. If he's if he's a normal Jew at the time, we have a lot of this data that five five. You know, the average house, the ceiling was about five five. So you have a small population, and so we think of. I kind of use that to talk about how we depict and how we view Jesus. And throughout time, whether it was the Nazis or medieval Christians or what we do today, where we depict Jesus as a military masculine figure or a more feminine figure or whatever it is, sometimes that reflects our theology about him or vice versa. You know, it, it really is kind of an yeah. interesting discussion. So um, anyway, maybe we can just throw out there a little bit about dress as well, that, that the, the most common dress from the time period is a, a, a pretty simple tunic um, that comes uh, not to the knee and that the savior even uh, at times kind of looked down on some people would have long flowing uh, tunics as a sign of their wealth. And the savior actually said that wasn't a great thing. So, most right. likely, he's wearing a short sleeve tunic that doesn't close up well enough to hide your, your chest fully, right? And and uh, and comes down to like kind of in between mid thigh to the knee, somewhere in, in there. So and often quite colorful, uh, not not like lots of colors, but we see depictions of red, green, yellow, these kinds of things. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and that kind of maybe it's a good transition from there to um, what people believed about the Messiah. Yeah. Some of that, you know, some of that is relevant, um, how they viewed the world and um, depending. So there's their own lifestyle, but then there's uh, oppression or perceived oppression from overlords and you know, whatever that is. Like we know that the, the populace, like we're talking about the populace, protested Pilate. They protested. And this is the centuries before and during Jesus' lifetime. Um, a lot of angst about, um, you know, there's a lot of there, there's instances where. Like they'll go to Passover and Josephus says there's this Roman soldier who exposes himself, like some young guy who's immature exposes himself and it sets the whole crowd in an uproar because this is right at the temple and uh, something like 20,000 Jews are slaughtered. Like maybe Josephus is embellishing, maybe not, but yeah. but because because the they rise up and protest at, at what the soldier had done. Right. Yeah, that's right. Because um, the disrespect, um, sometimes they're mad at the high priest. You know, there's one time where the high priest took the water from the pool of Siloam, which is a ceremony. You come up and you dump the water on the, the altar during the um, Feast of Tabernacles, and he dumps it on his feet to provoke the crowd for a certain reason. And they all stone him with their fruit, their, their trill game. 
they stone him, you know, they throw it a massive amounts at him, disrespect him, and then more are killed. So there's all these kinds of um, situations where we can see that the that there's certain times, especially during Passover, where there's these protests and these riots. And so it kind of allows us to talk about messianic expectations and what this um, what this is all about. And when I, I in class I start with, and in the book I start early in the early Israelite period and show uh, a gradual a, a development from the early days to this word Mashiach or anointed one. Um, where the king is kind of not just the Israelite king, but it could be Egypt, it could be Hit, uh, the Hittite king, the Assyrian king, where there's this idea of, of like a spectrum of maybe the divine, they're called shepherds in certain ways. So there's a lot of this imagery being dumped on the king as a divine son or, or you know, somebody who's uh, called a son of God or, you know, some sort of anointed one. And Cyrus, you know, he's called uh, an anointed one and the context of there is that he will subdue the nations under his feet. So it's kind of a military figure. Like you get early on, there's a military figure, a human being who's going to eventually come, you know, from the line of David. But as we move along, I'm just sort of sweeping through it. But as we move along, by the time we get to like Zechariah and Daniel and some of those later books, you see a, a, a view of like a supernatural figure, almost like a comic book. Like he's going to come in the clouds of heaven and touch down on the Mount of Olives and it's going to, split the Mount of Olives in two and he's going to subdue the nations. And this is this is the development that you walk through. And by the time you get to a few centuries before Jesus, you have this kind of merging of, you know, we talk about terms of son of man, son of God, Messiah, you know, the Davidic king, all kind of merge. And sometimes they might have been different. You got a son of God that was a human king. And then you have a son of man. Originally, he was also a human, right? Ezekiel's called Barinosh. Yeah. Yeah. Human being, but eventually we see where you get in Daniel seven, he sees a vision of one who comes and looks like a son of man. Right, he looks like a human being. And then as you go along, you get the Book of Enoch, where he you can see the progression where it's this. There's some figure called a son of man, where he used to be called he looks like a son of man, and now he's called a son of man. Like he's not just a human being; he's the human being. Right, he's not just a king; he's a king of kings. Um, you know, he's, you know, he represents a lot of that. So, and then we get into the Dead Sea Scrolls and I've surveyed a, a lot of the uh, this material that the Jewish writings uh, during this time period and the Dead Sea Scrolls and compiled a list. So I've got this list somewhere. I'll show you, I'll just show you not, not all Jews everywhere had this set of criteria that a Messiah would have to, these types of things that he would have to do. But here's just kind of a list that will give you an idea. So he would be a pre-existent figure with some divine qualities. Some texts talk about that. He would be, um, all people would worship him. He would be a king. He would reestablish the Davidic dynasty. His kingdom would be everlasting. Um, he would have authority over the nations. He would lead Israel. He would judge the wicked and overthrow Israel's foreign enemies. He would be associated with righteousness. And, and I found one passage in the Dead Sea Scrolls that, that said that he would heal the sick, restore the sight to the blind, and raise the dead. So now you get some of that folded into the uh, Messianic traditions. Again, not all Jews believe all of that, but it's peppered throughout the text, and you can kind of see. Now, I asked my students, when we show this list, what is not there about the Messiah that Christians would expect to be there? And that is a dying Messiah, right? It's not there. There's some passages like 
Daniel 9 or Isaiah 53 or some others that might hint that there's some figure who will be killed, but some of those ambiguous. And certainly we don't see the early Jewish writers, Josephus, rabbis. If there is a little bit of tradition about a dying Messiah, it's just like overshadowed big time by a victory, like a victorious Vidicane, right? It's not what most people are thinking of at the time. Right. So that, I mean, that when Jesus is born, he's stepping into this world where you have a lot of corruption. You have all these ideas that have, um, it's a lot of baggage too. Like it just sort of snowballed. And by the time you get Jesus come, like there's this Messiah is supposed to do all of this stuff. And Jesus steps into this world where the Herodian family's corrupt. Uh, the few centuries before Jesus, you had the high priesthood was corrupt. You had people come in and buy, like buy into um, the office of high priest and tons of high priests were killed. They were poisoned each other. There was murders. You can read about all this in Maccabees and in Josephus. Yeah. And there's, I, I forget the number, but it's, Within a period of something like 30 years, you've got like 20, 24 high priests, new high priests, you know, some crazy number. And and then Herod was uh, Herod was awful. And so by the time Jesus comes and there's all kinds of riots, there's all Josephus talks about there's all these people who tried to burn royal armories and, and put on royal garb and storm in Jerusalem. You know, there's all there's a there's a, a document, maybe about 12 of those types of people in Josephus. And all in the first century, from 4 BCE or BC to about six in the 60s during the war. So that's a lot of people, a lot of like messianic, you know, uh, fulfillment, people trying to, to, to fulfill these notions. So um, that allows us to look at, what, you know, when I, when I lay that out for my students, I say, okay, now we can get into the Gospels. And almost everything you see is relevant to some of this Messiah. And it's whether it, Jesus's actions, some of his actions were seen as messianic, or it's the later gospels writing and, and, you know, interpreting Jesus's actions. And they put in, like, they got a verse to stamp that messianic activity yeah. on top of it, right? Matthew so, in particular, but yeah. I'll... Yeah, Matthew does it. And so there's uh, some examples, like, right at the beginning, like the genealogy of Jesus, like in Matthew. Mm-hmm. He's got the, he goes through, and it's, it's all about David. And it's all it references up to and from David, and it's clear what he's what he's doing. You have um, again in Matthew, you have the Magi come, and you know these are giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A lot of this is from the Psalms, where the, the people from the the, uh, the the foreign kingdoms, and they mention Sheba or Sheba, where people bring gold and frankincense and kneel down and worship Solomon or son of David. And so all these stories whether historical or partly historical or whatever it is, they're just dripping with these messianic ideas, right? And so the question for me in some of my writings is, did Jesus call himself the Messiah? Did he like that term? And as you go and survey everything, it doesn't seem like he does. Like I'm, when, I'm, when I look at it, Nathan comes to him and, and he's at, he has this interaction. He's like, are you like the Messiah? Are you that one? And he says, why, why do you ask me that? Like, you're going to see greater things like he doesn't ever just answer it he does to two people and they're they're non-jews there's the samaritan the samaritan woman the woman uh samaria samaritan mm-hmm. woman and caiaphas right right and so he's alone and he's with them and even those are kind of ambiguous at least the caiaphas one where in mark and matthew he seems to acknowledge yeah i am but then in luke he says i'm not gonna answer when he says are you the son of god right 
Messiah, like son of God, a king, like that's referring to like mess messianic, that's terminology. He doesn't answer in Luke. He says, well, if I if I try, if I answer, you won't believe. And if, if I ask you a question, you won't answer. Like, I, I'm not going to have this debate because it's not going to be a debate in good faith. No. Um, I think you know, he um, in the synagogue in Nazareth, when he when he quotes from Isaiah, uh, where Isaiah is talking about the Jubilee year, it's a veiled reference. Right, right, it, right. it talks about the Lord hath anointed me. Right. So that's. Yeah. There are plenty of people who are anointed, priests are anointed and so on. So if you say the Lord has anointed me, you can take that a few ways. It's a veiled reference to it, not a full out uh, admission. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, you know, Peter says, or, you know, he says, who, what are people saying about me? Like, what, what are they, what labels are they putting on me? And they're like, oh, you're going to, you're the son of, you know, son of God. And you're not going to be, you know, he says, you're not going to be killed. And so there, there's this. Um, or, or when Jesus is uh, performing miracles, he tells his disciples, don't tell anybody, you know, don't leave it secret. And so we're not saying that he is not the Messiah, according to his own view, but it's it, it kind of seems like he's hesitant to take all of that baggage and that label, you know, because in John, it says they uh, with John six or one of the chapters where yeah, it says they John force six. themselves to Jesus and force him to be their king. And he's like, I'm not doing this. And he flees and takes off. He's yeah. like, I'm not into that view yeah. of him so and i think that's part of what he has to wrestle with is he is the messiah and he needs them to understand who he is but they have such a different expectation and view of the messiah that that term in some ways will do him a disservice in trying to teach who he really is as like right. you, you brought up a great example that they, they, they want to make him king and we see that at the very end of his life they're ready to make him king right and, but it's not and, and I, most of them are, especially in the Galilee area with King, they're going to want him to help them overthrow Rome and so on. Uh, and that's not what he's about. And so this is a difficult term. And, and I often talk about levels of understanding of who he is, right? There are some people who will acknowledge he's a great prophet, others who will acknowledge he's a Messiah. And, and his apostles are going to have to go through these steps. And I, so I, this is something for people to watch as we go through uh, the New Testament. Um, and then, as you say, son of God, which can mean a number of different things to a number of different people. Right. Um, uh, especially, you know, like when Pilate hears he's the son of God. Well, Romans have a whole different idea of son of God, right? Is that Hercules or something like that, right? Um, um, uh, but but it's one thing to think of a prophet, another Messiah, another thing, son of God and, and, and divine. Uh, and for us, those are going to be wrapped together when we think about the Savior. But that's not for them. So, for example, when we get Peter saying, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, that right. that's some step forward from where most people would understand Christ and who he is and what he is, even if they're accepting him as a great prophet or even as the Messiah, there's some steps forward. So that's uh, something I would encourage our audiences to keep looking for these different understandings as you read this year and ask yourself when, when these people are accepting, what are they accepting him as, as prophet or Messiah? And what do they mean by Messiah? And, and, and how does the savior interact with that as you're saying? So anyway, uh, keep going, but I just am hoping that uh, our audience will be primed as they listen to this to think, okay, I'm going to watch for this for the rest of the Gospels. Yeah, and uh, my train of thought was heading somewhere else. But since you mentioned it, I'm, I'm, I, want to I want to mention this in case I forget. And that is, as we go through the New Testament, and I, my, my book, the 2019 book, is like I make this point over and over and over again. And as a Jewish studies scholar who studied with Jews at three different institutions, I found myself wanting to interpret it with charity in the sense that, Instead of just take, instead of saying in, in kind of a juvenile way, in my mind, 
oh, why didn't the Jews recognize Jesus as the Messiah? You know, like, well, yeah. they did. Some of them did. Like, a lot of them thought he might be a Messianic candidate. Yeah, and, like, but many of them of did. Right. Well, yeah, many of them did. And it's only when he died because, and we think, oh, yeah, but there's all kinds, of, like, we point to Isaiah 53. or they, they misunderstood it. Well, we would have misunderstood it as well in that yeah. time period. Right. I agree. So you, I agree. you look at the two, the two people on the road to Emmaus and Jesus is there. And then when they finally understand, it's like he's in disguise when they finally understand who he is. But like when they're talking to him, they said, like, what have you been? Where have you been? Like, didn't you know what happened to our great prophet? He died and now everything's everything's yeah. lost. And now we're just going back to where we came from. Right. Yeah. He, he's not what we thought he was because he died. And, and right. I agree with you 100 percent. If I, I can't, I, I really, really think if I were the best intentioned and a well-studied Jew in Jerusalem or Galilee at the time, I would have been not expecting him to die. His right. apostles weren't, right? His apostles are shocked by the whole thing. And, and not only that, okay, so they're shocked, but it's really telling like in Acts, it might even be the first chapter, if I remember, like when Jesus comes, appears to the you know, to the 12, if you remember, they didn't say, oh, wow, like you're here. How did this happen? I thought like there was not that discussion. It didn't mean they had didn't have that discussion. But the first thing they say, if if, if you remember, is is now the time that you're going to redeem Israel. Like their yeah. whole focus is like when yep. is messianic, like the Davidic king going to be yep. restored, all this nonsense with Rome and everything. When are we going to have our prophet, priest, king, our land, our temple? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. They're still expecting that's what he's going to do when he comes back to life. Oh, good. Now's the time. Now you're here. right? Yeah. Um, you know, and then there's Peter. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think if we remember that as we as we go through the New Testament, not only do we think of, OK, what do Jews think about him or hope? Like if they see if he, they see him perform a miracle and it's they say, oh, is this guy a possible Messiah? OK, that will help us. But it's also why he was killed and what, you know, what did what did people have a problem with? Like, we don't have enough time to get into the all the like the trial and everything. But but all this talk of like they killed him because he was a magician or they killed him because of blasphemy. Like, I don't see any of that. I, I mean, there's some little passages that people have used to try to interpret that. But like the plaque on his cross I, designates in, in what, all four Gospels or at least three of them tells his crime. King of the Jews. It's not because he was a good guy who tried to help the poor and bring like bring people into the mealtime symposia that were outside the house of Israel and Pharisees were mad. Like, it's not any of that. It's because if Pilate thought that he really had a parade that really happened into Jerusalem, what people are yelling about Messiah and he's contending with priests, you know, like that guy doesn't stand a chance. Like, he yeah. won't last two days. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that really helps us contextualize it. And then there's stories when that are kind of hidden where like when he, like his first miracle in John, when he's turning the water into wine, we kind of see that and move on. But the, if you're thinking of Amos and like Obadiah and like Isaiah and some of these passages where they're talking about in that day, like it, the implications, the messianic age, the mountains will flow with sweet wine. Like it'll flow. And so it's yeah. the best wine. It's a lot of wine. And so all of the, a lot of those, healings or miracles speak to this um to these passages of the end times or uh messianic days and so we we can see we see that all the way um all the way throughout so that it really it does help um 
Okay, now I have one more topic that's related if you want to dive in, because I think this is my, I, I love this topic and I do this with my students, but it's an unorthodox for Latter-day Saints. And that is the case of Judas. Mm. Okay, so the, and we don't spend a lot of time on it, but basically my reading of it, my argument is that if, and this is again, a charitable, kind of a charitable trying to look at what G Judas is doing, kind of use the text, analyze the text. If Judas saw G viewed Jesus the way Peter did and the way that a lot of people did, you know, if he was a typical Jew with those messianic notions, could it be that he turned Jesus over because he thought he was the Messiah and therefore he can't lose? Um, and I detail this in the book over and over, like 10, 12 pages. I look at all the theories of both of why he did it, um, both from Christian theologians and all the different gospels. And it doesn't make sense to me that he would just, you know, the story doesn't make sense where he's either demon, like demon possessed, or he's, you know, or he's greedy and wants to like turn him over for the small price of a slave. What makes sense to me is that he thinks Jesus is the Messiah. He turns him over and the word paradokin is, doesn't mean uh, betray. You know, I, I detail this and look at the word all throughout Josephus and everywhere else. It doesn't have a connotation of treachery or turning on someone. It just literally means to deliver. So, you know, and when Jesus says, you know, during the Last Supper, one of you is going to deliver me. And then they're all like, well, who's going to do it? Like, who, you know, there's not a sense, you know, and then Judas leaves and the apostles think he's going to go out and give to the poor, or get food. There's not a sense that there's hostility between him and Jesus or between him and the apostles. And so there's all these different um, facts that come into play that maybe he turned Jesus over. He thought Jesus was going to be a victorious Messiah. When everything went south, then he maybe had a mental breakdown. Like, we don't know what happened to him. Yeah. You know, and the apostles later, the writers later, uh, and, and all the way up to Papias and others are trying to explain what happened to this guy. And in, in Matthew, he committed suicide. In Acts, it was a different story where his bowels fell out on the, you know, uh, spilled out on the ground. The Gospel of Judas, he was excommunicated and stoned by the apostles. Uh, Papias has him getting hit by a chariot. But, it, but and so we don't know his motives because none, none of the texts agree. We don't know what happened to him because none of the texts agree. Um, it's a very difficult situation, but it makes sense to me. It's not a strong argument, but it makes sense to me that this guy thought Jesus was the Messiah, that he would turn him over. And then like he, when things went south and he, you know, in fact, he even says right when Jesus got turned over to Pilate, he's like, oh, no, went back to the high priest. I don't want this money. And, uh, and it even says in Matthew that I sinned. And that word means uh, not to sin against God. It means I, it's, I was mistaken, you know. So uh, these are kind of the things that all play into this messianic uh, idea. Yeah, and, in fact, uh, I've, I've often wondered if he's not trying to force Jesus's hand. Like, hey, I'm tired of waiting for you to deliver us from Rome. So if the Romans arrest you, then you'll have to deliver us. So let's get right. this going. Right? I, and I don't know. I, I really have no idea. But that's, yeah. that's a, a possibility that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I guess, uh, a, lot, a lot of this, you know, your podcast, the scriptures are real. A lot of this, you know, I, I don't, um, my my go-to method when I write or teach is to talk about big issues. I don't necessarily like to say, okay, in class today, we're going to go Matthew 1 and 2. Next time we'll go Matthew 3 and 4. I'm, I deal with topics, Messiah, notions of Messiah, or we deal with the case of Judas or, you know, Jesus as a healer. And what you know, the, the title of your podcast is great because what makes it real to me is to try to step into the shoes 
uh, Peter or Judas or some of these people who are sick. And we're, we say, okay, was this guy really possessed by a demon or was he like, or maybe, he, or he had mental health issues, problems, you know, really erratic behavior. And so for me, that's, that was really the theme of my scholarship over the last four years writing this book is to be charitable to the people at the time of Jesus. And, um, and you know, to, to try and walk in their shoes a little bit and then see it from their perspective. Yeah, that's right. And, and then, and for me, as a social scientist who asks these kinds of questions about the biblical history and the story, like that's where, and I present this to my students and it just comes alive and they're thinking, I never, you know, I never thought of why that person would have told Jesus on the road to Emmaus, like everything's like lost and our prophet died and there, it says they mourn. And it makes sense if they have the broad contextualization of, you know, the Messiah, like what that all that means. And so, yeah, um, I think I've covered everything. I don't know if you've got anything else, Carrie. And no, I, I think that's great. I, what I hope is that our our audience will continue for the entire reading of the Gospels to try and put themselves in the shoes of of these different people and and say, okay, what was life like for them? Uh, you know, how hard was it for them to to uh, like I think all the time about the apostles to leave their taking care of their families when probably they were not. Uh, I, I doubt any of them were wealthy. Uh, maybe Matthew, but I don't know. But anyway, uh, uh, what was it like for them and uh, how, you know, leave with Jesus and what there's a decent chance someone in your family dies while you're gone for a year or something, you know, and, and I hope we're, we're putting ourselves in their shoes and also putting our shelves ourselves in the shoes of his apostles, but all who meet or hear of Jesus and try and filter through how would they, when they hear this story, what would it make them think about Jesus? And when they think about him as a prophet or where they think about him as a Messiah, what are their expectations? And what does it take for them to become someone who finally understands? And I, I honestly, I don't think any of them really understood until a while after his resurrection. Um, but what does it take for them to become someone who really understands uh, who he was and what he was doing. And so look for those things. And I think it will make all of the, the gospels really come alive for people. That's, that's what I'm hoping. So yeah, it's really, it's really yeah, it's, it, there's a, we could go on and on, but th that's really what you've said boils it down. And, you know, when, when you read the apostles fled in Gethsemane and left, instead of just assuming, imposing this like negative, immature apostles, it, there's a reason why they're fleeing and because they've seen Pilate do this thing to other messianic candidates and slaughter like the guy, the Egyptian guy who came to um, onto the Mount of Olives, they killed 400 of his followers and he escaped. Like they know this about Pilate. And so the first question is like what you said in your final thought. The first question is why would they have fled? How long did they fled? Did they flee? Did they ever come back during the trial? Maybe not. And so like the, the question of why always helps. Why did they do that? Not because there's something wrong with them. It's because there's a reason you know, in their context, right? Perfect. Well, thank you, Trevin. Hopefully the scriptures have become a little more real for everyone as we've done this and it enhances and adds power to their, their scripture study.